instead of you know uh if you could just like say into the mic like i am nicole and i am somebody like with whatever inflection feels net. yeah say it however you want yeah, with those you want. words <laughs> yes okay I am Nicole, and I'm a person in long-term recovery from substances. Cool. Do you want her to say the just I am somebody? Do it. Just like the name of the podcast, like the I am somebody, like I am Nicole and I am somebody. I am Nicole, and I am somebody. Cool. There we go. Perfect. Yep. Um, and then? Yeah, I guess that's going to do it then, right? Yeah, ready, now right we're ready. ready. <laughs> Is everybody ready? All right, cool. Welcome to I Am Somebody. I'm Larry, and here with my co-host, Bailey. Hello. We have Nicole joining us here today to share her story. How are you doing today, Nicole? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, um, I know that I don't think, uh, I know I don't know you very well. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm, like they said, Nicole, and I'm somebody that identifies as a person in long-term recovery. Um, I've struggled pretty much all my life with, um, substances and handling trauma and, um, having good coping skills. Um, I'm a mom of two children. I'm 43 years old. <laughs> You're fine. It's okay. Um, that's all right. Um, so thank you for sharing. Cause I don't really know very much about you either. So, um, what are you hoping comes from sharing your story today? Um, so self-disclosure has always been really, really uncomfortable for me. And I don't know if it's uncomfortable for others, but for me it is, um, stepping out of my comfort zone today by doing this, I'm hoping to, you know, instill some confidence in myself, and by sharing my story, I'm hoping to um, help others okay. that are struggling with some of the same things that I do. Very cool. Totally. Yeah, self-disclosure, I, that's a big thing for me, too, so I, I totally get that, and I'm going to say you are definitely not alone in that <laughs> one. That was very scary. It's kind of <laughs> like we have to ask ourselves – you know, what? Wh why are we going to self-disclose? What are we going to say? What is the purpose? Um, you know, is it going to harm others? Is it going to help others? So um, finding that line or boundary is very difficult. Mm -hmm. I'm the opposite of both of you, but I meet lots of people like you, so you're both certainly not alone in that. Is this um, the first time you've shared your story? Yes, openly, yes. Um, just bits and pieces, maybe in 12-step meetings and, um, you know, celebrate recovery, but nothing as big as this. Cool. So. Well, this is definitely a privilege then. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. To hear it. Yeah. So, um, doesn't matter where you start, um, wherever feels comfortable for you, um, and I'll let you kind of share with us some of your experiences. Okay. So... Growing up for me, uh, was fairly normal childhood uh, up until about eight or nine years old. Um, when we think about 
uh, trauma and stuff like that, there was something that affected me at an early age, um, and that was the divorce of my parents. Um, I took it really, really hard and didn't understand why. And at eight years old, you don't really, you you really don't know. So um, that for me uh, was very, very hard to deal with and cope with. Um, Other than that, as time progressed, um, my mother also was a um, recovering, well, she's in recovery now, but my mother also struggled with substances growing up. So the lack of having that in my life and trying to understand that and figure out why was, you know, um, very difficult for me. Um, She, um, the absence of her just left something empty in me. Now, my dad ended up remarrying, and I had an awesome stepmother um, who has now, uh, is no longer with us, but she kind of filled that void for me. And I always said growing up, um, I'm never going to be like that. I'm never going to do that to people. And lo and behold, things kind of started happening in my life. Um I struggled with substances from high school, just experimentation all the way um, into my 20s. I had, you know, good spurts of sobriety to where I didn't use substances, but they always kept creeping back into my life. Um, Looking back now as to why they were creeping back in my life is is because I wasn't coping with the things that, um, you know, life on life's terms, the things that life put in front of me. So, right. Um, in 2008, I got married to my husband, and we were both sober for four years. He struggled with alcohol. Um, and then shortly after that, in 2010, I was diagnosed with a skin disease um, called hydrodenitis superativa, and it was very, very, very dark for me because um, a lot of people hide this disease. It's not for the faint of heart. It's not pretty to look at. It really kind of destroys your self self esteem and kind of makes you want to hide and isolate. And there, there's a, another big word in recovery. We hear about isolation. Yeah. And um, with that diagnosis, um, there was pain, and 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 part of that and my doctors treating it was treating the acute pain that came along with it um and then also I think it was about them not knowing too much about this disease at at the at at that point in time um it's a little bit um more out there now but I'm actually not familiar with it could you like fill me in on some of what that means sure um a long time ago it was also called acne inversa so somewhere along the line, my sweat glands, my apocrine glands did not, um, did not develop. And in the developing of those, I think it happens mainly in puberty. Um, it's kind of, they stopped developing and they didn't work right. So with that... Um, I get very large, like abscess and boils and tunneling and tracking 
in the areas of the apocrine glands, which is your armpits, your groin, um, anywhere that you sweat, it can actually happen. I, I've seen people have them on their face, and there's different stages to this disease. Um, without, you know, disclosing all the nasty details, it's very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember dealing with this since I was 20, about 20 years old, living in Florida, the heat, the hot. Oh, yeah. um, I remember going to doctors and then telling me that I wasn't cleanly, and I'm like, what? I shower every day. <laughs> Or, you know, it was because of my weight or it was because of this or it was because of that. And and there just wasn't enough knowledge about it, you know. And after going to the doctor and, and, and feeling this way, yeah, you just tend to hide out and deal with it your own ways and I had had even terrible experience to go to the doctor and have them say this is basically just your fault right you're not taking care of you and so this is your fault versus it being treated as an actual disease right right horrible horrible experiences so like I said I dealt with them on the own my own I sometimes I would lance them on my own you know that kind of stuff should be done in a medical setting but when you have this fear of healthcare, you have this fear of doctors, you just don't know what to do or where to turn. So in my 20s, my drug use picked up, you know, I self-medicated because of this. Um, Once I got a diagnosis, though, um, I, the doctors started giving me prescription pills, pain medicine, um, Darvacet, Norco, um, Oxycodone, Um, So that kind of triggered me thinking that I have to have this to deal with this disease. And it's the doctor give it to me, then, you know, I'm okay. It's okay to do this. Mm -hmm. Um, After about two, two and a half years, uh, my doctor told me one day on a just regular routine appointment that I can, I'm, I'm, no longer legally able to prescribe this to you anymore and kind of left me in a sticky situation where I tried stop taking them and I was very uncomfortable and very um, very very Mm -hmm. uncomfortable and I, I figured shortly after that I, I had a dependency on on this medication, which was, was really scary. Was um, What was the reason that it was no longer legal to prescribe it to you? Well, my doctor said he can no longer pres- – he, he was legally bound is what he told me to s- prescribe it. And I think in that time period the FDA started to really crack down gotcha. on the prescriptions that were being handed out because – you know, the whole circle of every of them finding out that people are becoming addicted to these right. pills and gotcha. becoming dependent on on the opiate part of them. Um, so and it, it's kind of hard for me to explain. And there's other things going on in my life, too, around this diagnosis. Me and my husband were married for um two years at that point in time because we married in 2008 and we were trying to have a family. We were trying to make a family 
and you know the, I mean what woman doesn't dream about getting married and um, extending that family life with children or a dog or a pet the whole white picket fence at least that was my dream for me um, to be able to be a mom and I had a miscarriage with my husband, and I did, we didn't really think anything of it. Yes, it was sad, and it was very, very early on, and we just kept trying and trying, and I kept dealing with this diagnosis of the hydrogenitis along with it and thinking and wondering, does this have something to do with why I miscarried? We just kept trying and trying. Again, we tried another miscarriage. I would say I averaged at least two miscarriages a year until 2014. Um, I also had uh, about 11 or 12 mis yeah, we counted 11 or 12 miscarriages and two ectopic pregnancies that, My goodness. that we had to deal with. So things got really, really, really dark mm -hmm. for me while dealing with this diagnosis and dealing with um, the female issues that I was having um, not knowing why we had been to doctors, we, we were trying like things. The doctor thought maybe I had a clotting disorder. So we tried, we tried numerous things, uh, all the while I'm getting opiates off the street and using pills and buying pills off the street. Mm -hmm. I know somewhere in the back of my head, I thought maybe it's my drug problem that's causing me to not be able to carry this, carry a child, but, um, I just kept going, I, I, disregarding it. Um, mm -hmm. I really didn't think it was, but it floated around. Yeah, definitely you. floated or floated around. Uh, I had an atopic pregnancy that had to be uh, removed in 2011, uh, surgically removed along with my appendix, and then again, more pain pills for that was. Yeah provided in just this vicious vicious cycle of um dark and wondering why and why me and feeling sorry for myself mm -hmm. then in 2014 me and my husband had a conversation in the backyard by a fire um we were going to be happy no matter what you know, our higher power laid in front of us. So if it wasn't a child that was in our cards, we were going to travel. We were going to look into adoption. We were going to, we were, we were going to figure this out. And then a month later, I was pregnant again. And I thought, oh gosh, here we go again. Um, yeah, at this point, you're, at this point, I'm expecting the same results. Right. You know, um, I'm expecting for six, seven weeks, and then what has happened in my past, um, losing it, losing the pregnancy, losing the baby, um, and it didn't. It just kept progressing in time, and here I am, I'm using, and I get to a point where I'm like, okay, I can't use this drug, these, these pills, and um, drugs anymore because 
then in 2014, the pills were very, very hard to find. And um, I switched to what people were calling China or China White, um, which is basically heroin, um, a form of heroin. And I quit. I quit on my own, and I white-knuckled my recovery for almost three years because of this child. He's kind of my savior. (laughs) I know they say do it for you, but there was this huge reason and this huge drive in me, you know, and I conquered it. Um, I conquered that a little bit later than I wanted to. I was about four, five months along with no help, but gradually weaned myself through that. And when I say white knuckle my recovery, I mean I wasn't participating in any, um, like, groups. I wasn't participating in any meetings. I did not have a treatment team. Mm -hmm. Um, I did not have a counselor or a therapist or anything like that. Just kind of doing it on my own. I attended some meetings here and there just to kind of dabble and see see what it was like. Um, and I thought I had it. I really did. And when I say I'm in recovery for six years now, um, there was a point in time where life put in front of me a couple marital issues and I felt myself backsliding. Mm-hmm. Um, this was 2016, 2017. I felt myself backsliding in my recovery. And I, the thoughts were creeping in. And the triggers. And I remember having my old dealer's number. Because I re- memorized it from before. And dialing it in my phone. And I never pressed send. Um, and I thought about it for a really, really, really long time. Like, what can I do? Um, I did what a lot of us, I feel, I did what a a lot of us, I feel, (laughs) we do what we have to do. We fight that fight. And even though part of it was wrong in my recovery, I started taking Suboxone off the street. Um, which I felt in my head was half right and half wrong, <laughs> you know, because I didn't have that prescription for it. Mm-hmm. And, um, it kept me feeling normal. It kept me away from the, t- you know, the whole saying the lesser of two evils right, yeah. thing. It kept me from using heroin and it kept me from using pills, um, and then in 2017, I got pregnant again, and I thought, um, oh, man, I can't just quit these like I quit those just because I learned a little bit more with my first pregnancy and how dangerous that was, what I was doing with my first pregnancy, like weaning myself off. And um, I hid that. I hid that in my recovery, and they, when you talk about um, recovery and being honest and me white-knuckling it, and they say the hows, honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness, and I didn't quite have that honesty part, I don't believe. 
So that's why I hid me taking these Suboxone off the street. And um, I hid it all the way through that pregnancy. This pregnancy progressed just fine, too. And um, once I got to the hospital to deliver in 2018, May of 2018, it was way different than my delivery in 2015. They had a drug mm-hmm. screen cup on the counter, and they said, we're drug screening and drug testing all mothers that come in to deliver. And I thought, oh, I just, <laughs> here's the time where mm-hmm. the honesty is has to come through has to come through and I told on myself to the nurse and I said I had been using Suboxone off the street and of course they there you they you could tell they showed some worry and didn't believe me how much because I was just using a little bit and I don't want to say just or justify it but I could tell they didn't believe me right you know and I could tell the whole attitude changed for this delivery with yeah, the health care. Sure. And um, so I had I had her, and, and she was fine. But the protocol at the hospital is um, when you have a, a baby that has been exposed to opiates, they can stay with the mother for 24 hours, and then they're taken to the NICU for 72 hours to be monitored. Um, for all good reasons, mm-hmm. you know, um, to be monitored to make sure they're not experiencing withdrawals. Mm-hmm. It's called, um, p- um, sorry, neonatal abstinence, so not syndrome. And babies can experience very, very uncomfortable symptoms. She was fine. Um, we got to take her home 72 hours later, and she did not have to be intervened with any kind of medication. Um, when I was in my hospital room without her, um, we, the 24 hours had passed, mm-hmm. a lady walked into my room, and I believe she was a caseworker or maybe a care navigator or something with the hospital, um, and explained everything to me that, yes, I'd probably have an open CPS case. Uh, that it was going to get reported, and I just remember feeling so defeated and so shameful and so guilty. Like, why would I? Why would I put my two children through this? You know, <laughs> it was really hard. Yeah. Um. So then I was kind of told that. You really need to go and get some treatment. You need to show CPS that you're willing to put in this work mm-hmm. and you're open-minded enough to get to the root of why, you know, why you were using the opiates and why, um, basically the root of why we pick up and why we use substances. And even though it was scary, that's what I did. I um, sought services. Yeah. Okay. I saw services at a renewed mind here in Finley, and they gave me a therapist, and they had the medical side, um, 
which is very helpful to have a therapist, in my opinion, just to kind of vent to and talk to, even if it's just once a month or twice a month, to have somebody on your side that's, you know, not judgmental, unbiased. But I I was, so to speak, forced to get into treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as CPS, they, they did come in and say I was not able to be with my children alone. And that was another hard blow. Mm-hmm. It really was. How long after the birth was this? That they Directly that? after Directly. birth. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I just remember sitting in my living room and thinking these people are telling me I'm I'm too dangerous to be with my children and something something's got to give. So yeah. that's where I took the step to get into treatment and to do things the right way. That white knuckling it was not going to um, work, even though I didn't go out all crazy on that relapse and putting myself on Suboxone. Here I am now. And at this point in time, legally doing the right thing. Um, my husband got sick about three weeks after I gave birth to my daughter with meningitis. And it was really scary at the hospital. We had family with my other two children. And they had just given him uh, the, word, uh, the word that he was going to be admitted. And I stepped out in the hallway because I felt like I was going to kind of losing I didn't want him to see that and I stepped into the hallway to cry and my caseworker for CPS says Nicole and I turned and I saw it was her she's like are you okay what's what's going on and I said well my husband's getting admitted they don't know what's going on with him at this point and I don't know what I'm gonna do (laughs) I have these two children to care for, and I can't care for them because you say so. Right. And she says, well, I was just going to call you. We just typed up a letter. Your case is closed. Four weeks. You've done everything perfect, and we're going to go ahead and close the case. And I was just very, very, very relieved and thankful and blessed that, you know, my higher power at that time doing the right thing and being a month into treatment, put that synchronicity in my life and intervened, and it made me feel like everything was okay because I could be that mom again and I could be that wife again. What a incredible coincidence. Right. <laughs> to, to say the very least. Right. So, yeah, and, um, you know, I'm constantly working on tapering off the MAT drugs um, you know, cause it's not something I want to do continuously, but <clears throat> sometimes life things comes up and, you know, taking the safer route and the smarter route and thinking things through and playing that tape through is, is very, very important. Um, so yeah, uh, when, when we talk about recovering, we talk about past traumas and, and, Everybody's trauma is different. Nobody's is the same. You know, I think to my, when I think and reflect back, you know, we had had divorce, we had grief, we had um, loss, 
significant amount of losses trying to conceive a child. Um, a Renewed Mind did put me into a program called the Moms Program. And it was a place where these moms could go that were, we were all going through the same stuff. We had just all given birth and um, to our babies and was be able to be with our babies for 24 hours and then take in. You know, some babies were treated with, um, had to be intervened with medication. Some babies were not. And there was just this good group of women all dealing with the same thing. And we were able to sit and talk every Tuesday and bring our babies in and share and, mm -hmm. you know, share our struggles and, and all that. So that program was a godsend for me. Um, you know, I continued through that program f until my little girl was about a year, a year and a half. Yeah. Um, so if there's anybody out there pregnant and struggling, there is hope. Um, we can, you can handle this a good way to where your baby's safe and hopefully that, you know, they can go home with mom or go home with mom and dad. Yeah. So you reflected on it pretty much perfectly. It's just like the in your story, there was a lot of grief um, with your with the parents' divorce. There's grief and just having um, a skin condition in the first place, like to, to like just to grieve, like not having like that quote unquote normalcy. Um, and then to be kind of rejected. You had experienced a lot of rejection with with medical staff and um, to experience that in a similar way again when you were giving birth to your second child where it's like the attitude shift was what you were delivering and kind of having to re-experience some of that trauma that you already had gone through I mean and on top of that the incredible challenges you had in conceiving um, and then carrying a pregnancy you certainly had been through a lot in a system that seems to have set you up to have the addiction in the right. first place. Right. Yeah. So you reflected on it really well. Well, thank you. It's hard. And I feel like I don't try not to be so scattered and try not to share like all the, all the bad gory details, but I also feel like sometimes, you know, the bad needs to be shown so, you know, people can relate, you know, never in a million years did I think I was going to have these children and have a CPS case opened, you know, and, and, and the shame and the guilt that comes along with that f for trying to conceive for such a long time and people, people and me, myself would think in my head.